Welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and of goats. Isaiah 1, verse 11. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2. Fantastic. Good morning. How's everybody doing? We are going to talk about the blood today. I mean, is that not the best way to start a teaching? Like some rocking you too? I mean, I wanted to do like cartwheels up here and like start bouncing around like a crazy Irishman. I'm just so pumped up right now. Um, I'm David Stewart. If we have not had a chance to meet yet, um, the resident theologian here at Awaken. And, um, you know, some of these teachings that we do are very inspirational. You know, Micah gets up here and tells beautiful stories about his children and inspiring things about puppies and stuff. I just have to tell you, today is, there's going to be no puppy stories. I'm not going to tell you anything cute that my child has done. We're going to dive into this really juicy passage that was just read, and we're going to talk about the blood and the cross, and we're just going to get down to business. How does that sound? No messing around today. Um... Sunday, Bloody Sunday. The concept, the central concept of of what Christian uh, belief is all about, that Jesus dies on the cross and somehow that makes us right with God. That is what we're going to um, tear apart today in the most beautiful of ways. Um, But I want to start with this suggestion. Perhaps, just maybe, you and I and all of the uh, church for the last 500 years in the Western world has become so familiar with this notion that we no longer see it as the most radical event in human history. It's so familiar to us. It's so close. It's so tame that we no longer hear it for what it really is. That's my suggestion this morning. Now, there's this Russian uh, literary scholar, critic named Viktor Shlavsky. I don't know exactly how to say it. Something like that. Here's what he says. I'm going to put it up on the screen as I read it to you. People living at the seashore grow so accustomed to the murmur of the waves that they never hear it. By the same token, we scarcely ever hear the words which we utter. Our perception of the world has withered away, and what has remained is mere recognition. It's this inexorable pull of routine, of habit, that the artist is called upon to counteract. By tearing the object out of its habitual context, by bringing together the disparate notion, the poet gives a coup de grace to the verbal cliché and the stock responses attendant upon it and forces us into heightened awareness of things in their sensory texture. The act of creative deformation restores sharpness to our perception. A lot going on there, but here's what is, what is, what is fundamental to this. Those living by the seashore stop hearing the waves. And sometimes we need a poet, a musician, in this case hopefully a a, a theologian or a pastor, to make the familiar strange once again. So perhaps we who have lived by the seashore of our beliefs can maybe once again for the first time begin to hear the sound of the waves. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to try and hear 
the cross and hear the blood of Jesus again for the very first time. We're going to make it strange. Now, how do we generally talk about the cross and the blood of Jesus? You know, John says, the author John says that he's the atoning sacrifice for our sins, right? And that concept shows up a few times in the New Testament, and it's, it seems very plain. Like, obviously, we know how that works. If you've spent any time in the church at all, you know, you know the math. You know that equation. And if you don't, let me just kind of sum it up in, in a really uh, short narrative. God creates the world. Everything is fantastic. Everything's peachy. There's a couple people with belly buttons, uh, no belly buttons running around naked in a garden, and it's fantastic. And then they decide that they want to eat this forbidden fruit, so they do that. And God, being really, really just, gets really, really angry because they disobeyed the divine command. And so now God is in this conundrum where, well, I love these uh, people without belly buttons, but they've offended my divine sensibilities of justice and fairness and goodness. So I need to do something. So God, well, they're going to die because that's what happens when you disobey God, and you have to leave the garden, and basically you're going to struggle, it's going to hurt for the women to give childbirth, and the dudes are going to have to toil on the soil to, to eat, and it's just going to be this disaster, and we know the story, but God's like, okay, I've got this really clever plan, here's what we're going to do. Even though their offense was just, it was one simple thing, I've been infinitely offended, so what I need to do, this is God saying I'm speaking for God here, if you can't tell, I need to find a way to have my infinite sense of justice satisfied, but it also has to be paid from these finite creatures, so how are these finite creatures going to repay this infinite sense of wrong that has been done. I have an idea. Bingo. I will become a human being. I will take on flesh and become like them. So I will have my infiniteness uh, uh, remain in me in in the deep core of my being, but I will be finite like a human. Thus, if I can uh, live a perfect life and, and die... I will have fulfilled the requirements for the debt that is going to be paid. That is, that infinite wrong that has been committed will be somehow paid for or um, atoned for by the uh, blood of an innocent person. Obviously, we know that's Jesus, right? And that's the story. And then after, you know, Jesus comes along in the scene, those who say, yes, I believe in the blood and, and get baptized and you know, a church and stuff like that, um, and you go to, you know, a confirmation. You get to go to heaven when you die because, um, you know, the blood of Jesus covers you and God is no longer mad at you. And that's really the story. And I want to say this. It is mostly beautiful and it is mostly right that God has done something about human brokenness. But here's what I want to say. It's like there's something missing there and it's not yet fully complete It's like a glass of water that has just a tiny drop of urine in it. I wouldn't want to drink that if just I thought there was pee in it. And I just wouldn't want to. So maybe you would, but I'm not going to. Because here's here's what's fundamentally wrong with that characterization of the gospel. What happened to those who lived and died before Jesus came onto the scene and was able to pay for their uh, sins with his blood? What happens to those who fundamentally or you never have the chance to hear about Jesus? Should we just think that they're kind of out of luck because they you know, didn't grow up in a culture where that was part of the story? I mean, come on, people. This should, this should make us really uncomfortable to think that that is the way that it works. Um, and, then, and then how about this? How does God, by becoming really angry and pouring out all of this divine wrath um, on, on an innocent person, make everything better? How does God show mercy and forgiveness and grace through an act of terrible, bloody violence? 
if this doesn't strike us as really backwards and corrupt and tragic, then we have become so familiar with the waves that we no longer hear the sound of them as they lap upon the shores of our belief. So it doesn't seem to be the character of God fully revealed in Jesus, at least is the way I see it. And here's another important point, and if you don't believe anything that I've said up to this point, believe this. That story that I've told you has not been the dominant story of church history up to that point. For the first 1,000 years of church history, it was told very differently, and it was only at the Great Schism where the East separated from the West, uh, where the West then adopted what we'd call the substitutionary model of uh, atonement, which is kind of what I just told you. And then the East, they they had a very different idea of what um, the atonement was, about how we, are, we experience reconciliation with the divine, and that's kind of what we're going to unfold today. Um, and here's a, a final piece uh, about why this matters so much. And this is maybe a little bit more esoteric, so just put on your thinking caps. Um, we become what we behold. When you and I have a picture of God that is okay with sacrificing an innocent person and is okay to use blood and violence to bring about redemption and reconciliation, we become people who are okay with those things. This is a fundamental truth woven into the fabric of humanity. Um, Our de facto, our default image of the God that we represent to ourselves in our imagination is in a symbiotic relationship with the kind of people that we are becoming. It's happening below the surface of uh, our conscious reality usually, but it is so fundamental that Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 3. He says, you know, when you behold the divine glory as in a mirror, a.k.a. your imagination, you become transformed into it. So whatever version of God we are lifting up as the paradigm of what God is like, we become transformed into that. And I want to submit that if we have a God who values violence to bring peace, who uh, sacrifices an innocent person to bring about redemption, then we are going to find ways to manifest that in our lives. And I think we just look around at human history, you turn on the news, we will find that to be true. Even C.S. Lewis touches on this concept in the screw tape letters. You know the story, you know, Uncle Demon telling Nephew Demon about how to trick humans. And he says, Uncle Screwtape says this to Wormwood. He says, all mortals turn into the thing they are pretending to be. This is quite elementary. Here's the principle. If we want to know fundamentally what the character of God is like, we look no further than the life and death of Jesus of Nazareth. It is that simple. So when we see a version of the story being told that doesn't quite jibe with this idea of Jesus hanging on the cross saying, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. This is what Jesus said to the people who had just nailed him to a tree and and beat him to a bloody pulp. Those are the words that came out of his mouth, and multiple Gospels attest to this. If we have a picture of God that doesn't line up with that, then I think we're in trouble. It's an inauthentic revelation, as long as it's not congruent with this idea that Jesus is the full revelation of God. You can see this in John 14. If you want to write this down, just check it out later. Jesus is talking to Philip. Philip says, I want to see uh, the Father. Just show us the Father. Jesus says to him, dude, you've been with me how long and you don't know? When you see me, you see the Father, my friend. Uh, Colossians 1, 19, where it says the fullness of the divinity was pleased to dwell in bodily form, obviously referring to Jesus. Hebrews 1, 3, where it says that Jesus is the exact representation of the divine glory. It's the exact manifestation of what God's heart is like. And it's fully summed up in 1 John 4, 16. And this is a verse we all know. It says, God is love. 
and you can't break it down any more simply than that. Not only is God, God is love, but when we experience love in any form, we experience the character of the source of the, uh, all of the universe. And that, my friends, is a beautiful thing. So here is the fundamental question that I want us to ask this morning. And this is going to be jarring because I think it's going to be a paradigm shift for a lot of us. I know it was for me when I started chewing on this. Put that question up on the screen if we can. Does God require blood to extend mercy and forgiveness to humanity? Specifically, does God require the blood of Jesus on the cross to do this? Now, could it be that perhaps we have somehow been beholden to a less than truly beautiful picture of God, and we have found a way to reflect that in our reading of the texts? Could it be that we have been so convinced that this is just, this must be how it is, so now we can find a way to see it? Well, yeah, we can probably justify that in the scriptures this way. On the one hand, yes, it seems so central, the blood does. I mean, we sing Sunday, Bloody Sunday. We talk about the blood, you know, at Easter. It's fundamental, all, uh, you know, all that stuff. But we, we celebrate it, and probably for good reason, but I, I, I think that the words of the prophet that um, we read at the beginning of Isaiah can maybe begin to help us jar um, our understanding of this and, and, and become unfamiliar with it again. Let me just read that again. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I've got more than enough burnt offerings of rams and fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and goats and lambs. Now, this is a direct reference to the Day of Atonement that the Israelites practiced in Leviticus 16, Yom Kippur. They still do it to this day. And here's what would happen. The priest would go into the temple, the Holy of Holies, sacrifice a bull, cover himself with that blood, put on a robe so he was ritually clean, go into the innermost temple, or a part of the temple, and there'd be two goats. One would be the sin offering, so that one would, you know, get killed, and that blood would be the kind of uh, symbolic uh, punishment for the people. And then the other goat would, the priest would lay hands on it and drive it off a cliff, and and the the guilt of the town, of the community, would be symbolically removed from the town. And this was one of the central rituals of the the Israelites from, you know, the time it's written in, in, in Leviticus, and it's still practiced to this day. And this was what it meant to be an Israelite. This was central to what it was to be a Jew. This is how you knew you're okay with God. You had the priest go before God and mediate that relationship. And Isaiah says this, speaking for God, I have no need for the blood of these animals. And then even in, in, the, in the prophet Micah, we hear the same sentiment slightly modified. Um, I'll, I'll read it. It's from Micah 6. It's not on the screen, so we'll just have to listen. Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams, with ten thousand rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn son for my transgression? Perhaps the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. Now he has shown us, humanity, what is good and what the Lord requires of us, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. God does not need the blood. God wants and requires justice and peace. And so when we hold up this story to what we see in the prophets, what we see in Jesus, we begin to sense an uncomfortable tension. And sometimes we need the words of a poet, an actual poet, to make strange be familiar. One of the most famous poets in the church history, I bet you didn't know this, was a dude named Thomas Aquinas. Not only the most prolific theologian, but the dude was an amazing poet. And I want to read two of them that he said. Here's the first one. 
I find, that nothing, find nothing more destructive to the well-being of life than to support a God that makes you feel unworthy and in debt to it. I imagine erecting churches to such a strange God will assure endless wars that commerce loves. How true is that? We can see that all around us. In Jesus' name, blood is shed because someone doesn't believe the same things that we do. Here's an even more beautiful poem. It's called God's Nature. Sometimes we think we are saying, we think that what we are saying about God is true when in fact it is not. It would seem of value to differentiate between what is God's nature and what is false about love. I have come to learn that the truth never harms or frightens. I have come to learn that God's compassion and light can never be limited. Thus, any God who could condemn is not a God at all. But some disturbing image in the mind of a child we best ignore until we can cure the dark. Here's what I hope to demonstrate in the rest of our time together. That God does not require blood. That the blood is something that we want. It satisfies a deep psychological need of humanity. And I'll tell, us how, I'll tell you how we get there in a second. And you just have to forgive me because in the next 15 minutes, I can't hope to say everything that will make this totally clear. I can only hope to uh, raise some questions that will begin the process of us reconstructing after we deconstruct. Um, but sometimes I think we maybe need to be jarred a little bit. So that's what this is going to be. Buckle up. The cross is not the place where God exacts divine retribution on the sins of humanity through the blood of an innocent victim. Rather, here's what the cross is. Fundamentally, the cross is a revelation that humanity has always been loved by God and humanity has always been forgiven by God. And any separation that we experience between us and the divine presence in the world is our doing. I mean, that is good news. Here's the other piece that the cross does, the other revelation It takes the fundamental condition of humanity and it puts it on display and it shows the utter absurdity of this this strand that runs through every human culture from the beginning of time. And it it exposes it to be a broken system and we're going to get to what that is in just a second here. So the cross is a revelation of the forgiveness and it's an exclamation point to the end of a particular way of being human that victimizes and that uses violence to bring peace. This all begins in Genesis 4 with the story of Cain and Abel. It's a story that we've probably heard, and it's a story we've probably lived out. Cain and Abel are making their offerings to God. God looked at Abel's offering more than Cain's. Cain became jealous. Cain says, hey, brother, let's go out into a field. They go out into a field. Cain kills Abel. The first instance of what we call mimetic desire. Rene Girard, a uh, French philosopher, would say, this is the fundamental um, brokenness of humanity. We want what others have. And we can't have it, it leads to violence. If, if you disagree with that, then I'd like to know how. Because to me, that seems so core to what it is to be a human. We see what others have, we want it. When we can't have it, it leads to some sort of violence to the other. We try and take. This is what happened with Cain and Abel. And here's the beautiful part of the story where um, God comes to Cain and says, where is your brother? Cain's response is loaded. He says, what am I? My brother's keeper? 
in the Hebrew, he's saying, is my brother's shalom, is my brother's well-being my responsibility? With the inference that, no, it's not. And then God says, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And that blood, innocent blood that has been shed since the first brothers has been crying out and God has heard. And that is the narrative that the Old Testament is fundamentally getting us to see, that in other cultures, the victim was always seen as guilty, and they deserved what they got, right? They died because something happened, and that's what Job's friends are saying to him. All this crap is happening to you because you must have sinned. You must have made God really ticked off. The Old Testament comes along and says, no, the victim is always the innocent one. And God hears that cry. We see this in Exodus where God hears the cry of the people in Egypt. Um, We see that Joseph and Job and Jesus are always going to be redeemed in the end. I need some water here. Chew on that for a second while I take a sip of water. And actually this idea that um, one could sacrifice something to God, whether it be a person or an animal in the more sophisticated cultures... Well, maybe it strikes us as rather barbaric and, and, and silly, and it should. At the same time, it was also a beautiful idea on the uh, landscape of the ancient Near Eastern religious milieu because there was this idea that you could do this, X, Y, Z, kill a goat, a ram, bull, whatever, give some oil, and you could then walk away knowing you're at peace with God. So that's good. It's good to know that you can be at peace with God. It just wasn't good enough. It wasn't a complete picture of what was going on. Take... um. Uh, take the Joseph narrative really quickly. We, we know this story, Genesis 37, if you want to read it later on your own time. Essentially, here's the story. Uh, Joseph is more beloved by the father than all of his brothers, even though the brothers are still beloved. Um, he's then sent, uh, we're told that the brothers hate him, so then he's sent by his father into this very hostile situation. And we're, we're told that as, as Joseph is going he, um, to see to the shalom of his brothers, he meets this person in a field of all places, and it's a God figure, and the God figure says, what are you looking for? And Joseph says, I'm going to see to the shalom of my brothers, and if this doesn't make us think of the Cain and Abel story being completely turned upside down, and that fundamentally what it is to be an Israelite, a person who um, says that they're a part of God's family, that this is what it's about, that we are to see to the shalom, to the well-being of, of, of one another, our neighbors and those who don't like us. This, and not that that just comes out of nowhere. This is a reflection of the divine character. Because this is how God has treated us, that he has always been seeing to our well-being, and this is then how we are to act. Um, it's a familiar story. Um, we see this in Jesus, in the life of Jesus. Jesus' story is what I'd call a fractal of Joseph's story. It's, it's the same thing repeated at a different scale. Jesus is sent by the Father into a very hostile world to see to the shalom of humanity. And Jesus even says um, in, in John fifteen three that you, referring to the people, are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Just like Joseph was going to tell his brothers that you may hate me, but you are already forgiven, Jesus comes to humanity to say, you're already clean, people. And this Greek word for clean or pure is the one that refers to ritual purity. It happens in 1 John, whoop, just spit, almost caught it, where it says, uh, katharizo, this idea that whatever has happened, you're now good before God. And Jesus uh, comes and says, people, you're 
already katharizo. You're already clean and pure because of the logos that I've spoken to you, because of the word, because fundamentally of who I am. You are already clean. This is before the blood. This is before the cross. There's even a story in 4th Maccabees, and I'm just going to go through this really quickly because I'm talking too much already, where these seven brothers are martyred. Oh, okay, sorry. Rewind. Can I hit the rewind button? Awesome. Just did. Um, the story of the Maccabees is this Jewish uprising against the um, rulers in the area in about 150 B.C., right? And there's this awesome story about these seven brothers who stand up to the, the ruler. This guy's name was Antiochus Epiphanes. And all these brothers um, are tempted by the, the ruler Antiochus. And he says, hey, if you just eat like that pork sandwich from you know, Arby's or whatever, um, then I won't kill you. And that was, you know, just a really simple law that made them Israelites and Jewish. And you couldn't do that. You don't eat pork if you're a Jew. And all the brothers say, no, we're not going to eat pork. You can even put us to death. So one by one, Antiochus kills all the brothers, like launches them off catapults, puts them on this stretching thing. And one, the last brother, they're all brutally murdered. And the whole time, it's very clear that in this story in 4th Maccabees, that what is happening is not good. It's gross, it's vile, it's murder, it's unjust. The last brother even jumps into the fire himself so he doesn't give Antiochus the satisfaction of killing him. And then here's what it says at the end of the scene. And this should strike us as a parallel with what is going on in Jesus' time. Because this is written about the same time that the Gospels are being written in about 50 AD. So this is very contemporary to um, what we see in the Gospels unfolding. Here's what it says. I think it's on the screen, actually. It's old. There we go. The tyrant was punished and the homeland purified. They, referring to the brothers, having become, as it were, a ransom for the sin of our nation and through the blood of those devout ones and their death as an atoning sacrifice, divine providence preserved Israel that previously had been mistreated. So here we have this act of deep evil, of murder against innocent people, and somehow it becomes this act of uh, redemption and reconciliation to the people. Nowhere in the text does it say, this was what God wanted, the innocent blood of people then to protect um, protect the nation from the tyrant, from Antiochus. But somehow, the faithfulness of these seven brothers and the other people who died as martyrs in this story, it gave a new perspective on what it meant to be a child of God. And it emboldened the community. In fact, Antiochus was so freaked out about how he saw the Israelites respond to that that he peaced out and he moved over to Syria. And here's the crazy part. Antiochus told his soldiers about the persistence and the dedication of the martyrs. And they, become, they became so fired up about um, what it was to give yourself to a cause and how you, know, you can die and stand for something that these men, Antiochus's men, became the most fierce, bloodthirsty army in the history of the region. The message of the martyrs was completely turned upside down by Antiochus and was used to feed more violence because the message can be heard in more than one way. We can see the violence as something that is sanctioned by God or we can see it as something that is used by God that God is very unhappy with. I suggest that it's the latter. So at the cross, as we begin to wrap up, God's character is fully revealed as love, grace, compassion, as a being who is drawing all people in. And humanity's character is revealed as bloodthirsty, as this, having this need um, for this 
psychological release through violence. Rene Girard would say that as violence builds up in the community, um, instead of letting the violence escalate to the point of it being out of control, they would pick a victim, a scapegoat, they called it. And this person would suffer the wrath for the community, and they would die. And then the community would actually feel better after that. There was a real psychological thing that happens when innocent people die on behalf of the community. This is not just a made-up thing. There's something real going on here. Now, we just want to say this, that this is not the best way to be human, that there is a more beautiful way to experience redemption with God and with one another. I think we can put all this together and say that thus the life and death of Jesus, particularly on the cross, is the greatest revelation in the history of human history. That violence ends in more violence. And that God's posture towards humanity has always been one of love and forgiveness. And here's the crazy part about what Jesus does. Enters into the sacrificial system. Becomes not only the high priest, but the sacrifice as well. And in so doing, offers us a way of life that opts out of the madness of redemptive violence and opts out of this human spiraling of downward evilness that responds with evil and says, there is a better way to live. And to demonstrate that, I'm going to give myself to the system. I'm going to become the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And after this, not only will the temple be destroyed in 70 by the Romans, but there will never again be a need for you, humanity, to offer blood to God because this is going to demonstrate that you are already forgiven. And that's what the cross is about. (sighs) Yeah. It's not important that we understand the precise mechanics because it's a mystery. The New Testament uses a plurality of metaphors to get at what's going on. But it is, under, uh, it is important that we undergo the transformation of that reality. And we move it from the realm of being a theory to defend, an idea where we say, this is how it is. Because then, if, if it's only an idea, what will we do to those who don't get the idea? What will we do to those who disagree with us? What will we do to those who don't get it? I would say we'd be violent to them in some way. But rather, if it's something that we undergo, if it's this process of being approached by the living God who is forgiving forgiving towards us that we have been so not graceful towards, I mean, that is a, what a strange place to be in. Have you ever been approached by someone who you've wronged and they were kind towards you? That is disturbing. And that is terrifying. But that is exactly what the cross is. And that means that mission and sharing your faith and evangelism and all that stuff, it totally changes in this paradigm. No longer do we have to go out there and tell people that they're rotten, dirty sinners and going to hell. Now we simply go out and demonstrate and announce the way of Jesus in our community. We put on display in our lives the radical love of God that does not end in violence. We don't try and convince anybody to believe anything. We don't have to wear our Christianity as this badge that says, we're going to heaven and you're going to hell. We go out and see to the shalom of our brothers and sisters. Even if that means we enter a system of deep injustice and bear that for them. We don't lift up the suffering. We don't lift up the evil. We fight against it. And in so doing, we become participants in this thing that Jesus 
was doing. And that fires me up. This means we're going to have to let go of this less than beautiful true picture of God that requires blood and, and requires violence to bring peace. And it means we're going to have to be approached by a God that we have victimized who is coming to us with grace and mercy. And that will require a death on our part. And that will be disturbing and terrifying because it's always scary to die to the ideas that we've held most dearly and most sacred. But here's the good news, my friends. Even when Jesus was on the cross and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in the process of becoming the most fully complete human, Jesus discovered complete abandonment from God, complete emptiness, complete isolation. And then three days later, there was a new life and there was a resurrection. And that is the promise for us. If we're willing to enter into the emptiness and the brokenness of the human experience and experience isolation from our tradition, from possibly our family, from maybe even ourselves, and certainly from our idea of God, we will die and something more beautiful will come to life in its place. Sin in this paradigm will no longer be that thing that just pisses God off, but it'll be anything that can be forgiven. Anything that can be forgiven. And Jesus says you will only forgive to the degree that you are able to experience forgiveness, so chew on that. As we close, I'm going to bring the band back up. A few thoughts. We're very familiar with this concept of redemptive violence. It's been the dominant picture in our imagination for the last 500 years. Um, we see it play out in every facet of human life. We're familiar with it, and it kind of, we know it. It feels good. It's kind of comfortable, even though it's, it's horrible. We deal with it. Um, we can even imagine you know, someone like that we've wronged paying a debt for us, but then we'd be indebted to them. Can we imagine someone that we have done deep injustice to approaching us with a radical message of love and forgiveness that is not conditional? Can we imagine that? The cross has the power to rupture our imagination of God and allow something more beautiful to break in. The cross can cause a rupture in, our, in what we most hold deeply, and then we can see that we are reconciled to God right now. Thus, Christianity is fundamentally about becoming who we already are, not trying to become something we're not. And this is the message of AA. You come in and you say, I'm an alcoholic. And then everyone around says, I know how you feel. And it is in the process of acceptance of what is already true about you whether it's broken or whether it's beautiful, that you then experience the depth of transformation. That is atonement. That is what makes us one with God, that the veil has been torn between humanity of God, and we see that all along, God has been standing there saying, you are my beloved. And if nothing else, that is really really good news. Friends online at www.electivecommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash awakening community or on Twitter at awakening community. See you next time.